Welcome to Eric Hurst's Training for Climbing podcast. Training for Climbing podcast. Training for Climbing. Training for Climbing. Training for Climbing. Hello, and welcome to the Training for Climbing podcast. I'm Eric Hurst from trainingforclimbing.com, and I'm here with the fourth in a series of episodes on using the bioenergetic energy systems as a conceptual model to plan, guide, and optimize your training. This episode will delve into the aerobic energy system, which is very important for your long-term development as a climber, especially if you're into roped sport climbs and traditional routes and the like. That said, the aerobic energy system is constantly at work throughout the day, during your training, and it is the primary factor that drives recovery. And so even a boulderer can benefit from knowledge of the aerobic energy system and how to train it in ways that can enhance your climbing and help you reach your climbing goals. Now, before we dig deeply into this episode, a reminder to listen to the three previous episodes. Very important to kind of understand the breadth of this very complex topic. Uh, we started off with a look at the anaerobic alactic energy system. The last two episodes, we delved into the anaerobic lactic energy system. And now in this podcast, we look at the third energy system, which is the aerobic pathway for ATP production. Now, energy system training, this conceptual model, it's complex stuff. It delves into, say, 200-level college biology, and it incorporates cutting-edge research, some of which hasn't even been published yet. And so it's definitely too much information for a beginner climber to assimilate and put to work, and it's just too early in the game if you're a beginner or even a early intermediate kind of climber to really be thinking in depth about energy system training. Uh, you need to learn to climb, you know, developing and refining your technique and your movement skills and your mental game and develop general fitness and stabilizer muscle strength and, you know, general climbing strength. As you progress, however, as you get into a higher intermediate, advanced and elite climber, well then, this type of information is gold. And uh, for someone who's been climbing many years and who's kind of reaching a plateau or maybe the training is getting stale, well, this is really the stuff for you because this material, if you can understand it and apply it appropriately, will power you to the next level. I'm very, very confident of that. Now, in the next podcast, and that might be six weeks or so from now because I'm heading out of the country on a climbing trip, but in any case, uh, the next podcast, perhaps in early August, will be kind of a wrap-up where I will summarize the key take-home points from the previous four podcasts, I give you some very specific action items, and even address some side topics and questions that I've been receiving with regard to energy system training. But before we dive into the core content, just a reminder to share this podcast with your friends and your climbing partners via email, via message, or better yet, share it widely on your social media. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while now, you know they are content-rich, and there's a ton of 
good material uh, for many climbers, brand new material, stuff they've never heard before. And therefore, this has the potential to change the trajectory of a climbing career, both yours and your friends. So share this information widely. And, and, you know, of course, it's comfortable to continue training and doing things in the same old familiar ways. But taking your game to the next level demands that you do new things, make new distinctions, and take the nuance of your training and your climbing to a higher level. And so that's kind of on the large scale what the goal of the Training for Climbing podcast is. And these podcasts on energy system training, as I mentioned, are gold, or there's at least lots of gold to be mined from them that you can apply to your climbing, your training. And uh, it might not make a difference today or this week or this month, but in the long term, you're going to be a much better climber, a much stronger climber, if you learn to use this material. Uh, And final comment, please leave a review on iTunes. If you love these Training for Climbing podcasts, I'd really appreciate it if you can take a minute or two and write an iTunes review. And, of course, give it five stars if you really like it a lot. Thank you. Okay, then, now onward we go into our drill down into the aerobic energy system. This is the dominant energy system throughout the day, except for when you're engaging in brief, intense exercise. You know, when it comes to sporting activities, we tend to think of steady state, low to moderate intensity exercises like running and swimming and cycling and such as aerobic activities, as exercise that primarily stresses the aerobic energy system. And for the most part, that's correct. Conversely, high intensity, powerful movements are largely anaerobic or at least they're more anaerobic than they are aerobic. Examples of this are like Olympic lifting and various types of weightlifting activities uh, and sprinting, of course. Short, powerful, for the most part, all-out activities are largely anaerobic. Regardless of the activity, it's important to recognize that all three energy systems are contributing to ATP production. But to best invest your training time, It's vital to know which energy system dominates a given sport, since that energy system is likely a limiting constraint. Now, compared to the sports that I mentioned a moment ago, rock climbing is an especially complex activity, and it's tough to unravel the bioenergetics of it, because climbing obviously has elements of power and maximum strength and power endurance, but it also calls heavily on the aerobic energy system, as you'll learn in this podcast. So the energy system that dominates ATP production is constantly changing, depending on the type of climb, how steep it is, how small the holds are, um, and even move to move and sequence to sequence, one energy system will tend to dominate over the others, though the other energy systems are still providing or contributing some support. And so, again, it's a complex topic. We will have spent four or five podcasts looking at energy system training. It's a broad topic, and it's a a wealth of material, a lot to come to understand. But when you do, it will simplify your training and make it more effective at the same time. So yes, it's complex, but rock climbing as a sport is very, very complex, 
and there's a ton of nuance to it. And so ultimately, we need to, as climbers, train all three energy systems and have them on call at a moment's notice. And as the climb varies in intensity and difficulty and duration, one energy system will dominate over the others. And by the way, some sports that are kind of similar to rock climbing in this way would be wrestling, uh, gymnastics, uh, MMA fighting, uh, and perhaps even certain disciplines of alpine skiing. Uh, Those are sports that have uh, wide ranges of intensity, um, kind of an intermittent sprint-like nature to them, where you're going hard and letting up and then going hard again and then resting. And, uh, and, and those are sports that really do call on all three energy systems heavily. Again, compared to weightlifting, which is primarily anaerobic, or say long duration uh, running, you know, marathon running or 10 kilometer running or swimming or Ironman, those are almost completely aerobic activities. So the training goal for those folks is to develop a greater aerobic capacity. Now, as just the briefest of reviews, uh, the previous podcast we examined, the anaerobic alactic energy system. Uh, This is stored high-energy phosphates in the muscle cell, adenosine triphosphate, creatine phosphate, or ATP-CP for short, This provides instant power, instant on energy for one to 10 seconds. So that hardest climbing move or that brief powerful lunge move or a couple max moves in a crux sequence, that is largely powered by the anaerobic alactic energy system. Now, that system fades quickly at around 10 seconds and actually just three or four or five seconds into powerful movements, the anaerobic lactic system is already beginning to ramp up. And this is oxygen independent glycolysis that yields rapid ATP production as kind of a bridge between the alactic and the aerobic energy system. So from around 10 seconds up to a minute or two, This is the zone where the anaerobic lactic energy system tends to dominate, although it begins to run aground. It begins to power down at around 45 seconds, and by a minute or two, the aerobic energy system is taking over by necessity, and the power output at that point has dropped to perhaps only a third of maximal power output. And so when the aerobic system takes over and provides power output, as rapidly as it can, this is what's called the critical power level. And it's only about one-third of your anaerobic power maximum. And so that's the type of drop-off that will occur from 10 seconds to around two minutes of sustained all-out climbing is essentially a two-thirds drop in power output, which is huge. And so this anaerobic lactic system, that is the bridge. It is what's called upon on long boulder problems and uh, longer crux sequences. Uh, and it's, it's a reserve. It's an anaerobic reserve that is finite, that runs out quickly. Why does it run out quickly? Well, either energy substrates run low, or more commonly, if you're climbing and training relatively fresh, it's a metabolite-induced mechanical arrest that is really a protective mechanism during high-intensity exercise. It's caused by the byproducts of anaerobic glycolysis 
for example, inorganic phosphate, hydrogen ions, and lactate, which interestingly is not a bad thing. It's a good thing in terms of it can be used as a fuel by the aerobic energy system. And of course, that is the focus of this podcast is digging in and understanding that aerobic energy system that takes over uh, and helps you sustain climbing beyond 45 seconds or a minute or two, and also drives recovery uh, between bursts of high-intensity exercise. And so the beauty of the aerobic energy system is it's long-lasting. And in the context of a rock climb, at least a single-pitch climb, you're never going to really run out of aerobic capacity. Uh, The energy substrate is lactate, glucose, and fatty acids, though in high-intensity climbing, the substrate is mostly glucose and lactate, not fatty acids. Only in very low-intensity aerobic exercise do the fatty acids really come into play. So uh, being a fat-adapted athlete is not really a beneficial thing for uh, short rock climbs, sport climbing and bouldering. It could be useful, though, for big walls and, of course, alpine climbing. Uh, In any case, enough with that little tangent there. Um, This aerobic system will not itself fail you on a climb uh, because you're not likely to run out of fuel and your heart and nervous system are not likely to be taxed maximally. Uh, Now on a real long climb or if you're out on a long run, well of course eventually the aerobic system will slow down and begin to run aground itself due to increase in body temperature, dehydration, uh, nervous system fatigue. All of these combined will kind of get that central governor in your brain to downregulate your physical activity, make you move more slowly. It'll lower your power output. But again, those are more uh, limiting constraints when you're climbing for hours or days uh, in, in a, you know, a multi-pitch or a multi-day climbing venture. Of course, the focus of my podcast is uh, bouldering and sport climbing and uh, short, difficult traditional routes as well. And so on those climbs, what tends to fail you is the strength and power to do a single move, your alactic energy system, or you pump out on a long crux, your anaerobic lactic system, your anaerobic reserve, as you might think of it, runs out. That is a very limited energy system. And so these are energy systems that we can train up to some degree, as we've talked in the three previous podcasts, but the aerobic system provides a supporting role for those energy systems. So not only is our goal here with aerobic system development to help power climbing in of itself by way of the aerobic energy system, but to actually strengthen the alactic and the anaerobic lactic systems through the supporting role that the aerobic system provides. And so that's stuff that we're going to get into right now. So just how does this aerobic energy system support you in those high power situations? Uh, How does it support the anaerobic, alactic, and lactic energy systems? Okay, so let's first look at how the aerobic energy system supports the alactic production of ATP. That's that short term, that burst of power, one to 10 seconds. And it's uh, not so much during that 10 second high power output 
crux move or sequence or exercise that the aerobic system contributes very, very little, just a few percent during the exercise, but it's between the bursts, uh, between those brief crux sequences or between attempts on a difficult boulder problem. That's where the aerobic energy system shines at speeding resynthesis of creatine phosphate, which gets the kind of the gas tank of that alactic system filled about two-thirds of the way in just about a minute. And a more aerobically fit climber might be able to get there in 30 seconds. A less aerobically fit climber uh, might take a minute or two to recover. And so the higher your aerobic power, the more powerful uh, your mitochondria, they are the factories that uh, via the oxidative pathway synthesize ATP and resynthesize creatine phosphate, the higher your aerobic power, the faster you recover during brief rests. And even brief rests as in between hand grips, when you release one hold and reach for the next hold, the second or two that your finger flexors aren't contracting, a little bit of blood moves, a little bit of oxygen becomes available inside the finger flexors, and the mitochondria can crank out some ATP and resynthesize in just a second or two enough to maybe do another move or two. And that's one of the keys to climbing at a very high level. The recovery that you get during those brief micro rests uh, between grips or when you have just a brief moment to shake out and chalk up. Of course, if resting on a route or between boulder problems is unlimited, if you can rest for 20 minutes between boulder problems, or if you can hang out on a ledge and rest for 20 minutes in the middle of a route, well then, you know, the aerobic system is running the recovery, but how fast it regenerates, uh, the magnitude of the aerobic power isn't as essential. But if your rests are limited between boulders, uh, like in a competition setting, or uh, if your rests are very brief, as in a difficult sport climb, well, then a high aerobic power is essential for climbing your best and advancing your climbing ability to the next level. Okay, so now let's look at the anaerobic lactic system and how the aerobic energy system supports the anaerobic lactic system to enhance performance and to apparently increase your anaerobic capacity. Now, this anaerobic lactic system dominates in those grueling, sustained, resistance kind of climbing situations where you're climbing for 30 seconds to a minute or two without a meaningful rest. And so this is a situation where blood flow is frequently occluded as you're gripping on the holds. And so the forearm flexors are exposed to periods of ischemia where there's no fresh blood and no oxygen available. So ATP production is largely anaerobic. And as a result of anaerobic glycolysis, uh, the release of Inorganic phosphates and those hydrogen ions lead to a rapid loss of homeostasis. Uh, acidosis increases, which is a drop in intracellular pH. Uh, lactate begins to pool. And of course, uh, this energy system will run aground quickly if you can't somehow process or transport the lactate and the ions out of the cells, out of the working muscles. And so these really pumpy climbing situations are what are often referred to as anaerobic capacity. It's uh, really how much ATP you can generate 
before system failure. Uh, but I prefer to think of it as an anaerobic reserve. Uh, it's a limited tank of gas. It's a limited supply of ATP that you can generate in an anaerobic environment or largely anaerobic environment where you're gripping and pulling hard and blood flow is, is limited and occluded at times. And so, as we discussed in the previous podcast, there are things you can do to strengthen the anaerobic system itself to kind of stretch out that reserve and maintain homeostasis a little longer. But a big part of what you can do to increase your apparent anaerobic reserve relates to getting stronger and increasing your aerobic power, or what you might call climbing-specific VO2. Now, something you can't overlook is the role that technique and climbing efficiency and economy make. If you are on a hard, pumpy crux sequence, if you can move more effectively uh, and relax your grip and you know turn your hips and do all these nuanced things that improves your climbing economy, ultimately, you are reducing the ATP cost of a given move or given sequence and therefore stretch out that anaerobic reserve and climb farther and climb harder with that finite reserve that you have. And of course, that's exactly what expert climbers are able to do uh, because they have highly refined movement skills and mental skills to control arousal. And there's not a lot of energy leaks, not a lot of wasted energy uh, with those elite climbers. So that underscores the importance of constantly trying to take your technical and mental game to the next level. Now, while the focus here is on the aerobic energy system supporting the anaerobic lactic energy system, I, I do want to point out that increasing your maximum strength and your muscle efficiency will also help you out because by taking your maximum strength to the next level, it's kind of a ceiling. And the higher you push that ceiling, you can backfill underneath uh, greater uh, anaerobic capacity and you can function on a given move at a lower power output. So by becoming a stronger climber, a sequence that might have required a power output of 80% might only require power output of 60% of that new higher maximum. And so uh, it's important to recognize long-term, I'm talking year over year, the importance of taking your maximum strength to the next level. Now, what about aerobic system development? Well, similarly, you need to take that to a higher level year over year. It can seem almost indistinguishable, and it's certainly hard to measure, but it is important. It's a very gradual thing, but uh, year over year, it's something that contributes to elite climbers taking their climbing to a higher level season over season, year over year, often for a decade or two decades or more. You know, look at Chris Sharma. He's been getting better, able to climb harder pretty steadily over the last 20 years. And it's through, obviously, gains in technical nuance and mental skills and just belief systems and lifestyle. And there's a lot of things that go into it, but also taking strength and power to the next level and taking aerobic power to the next level are physically the, the critical factors coming into play. 
And so this brings us to really the crux when it comes, the physical crux when it comes to uh, climbing performance. Let's really get down and just look at the finger flexors because after all, that is ultimately the limiting constraint when climbing at your limit uh, is your ability to hang on to the rock or grab a small hold or endure through a long fingery sequence. And the crux, the, the big problem for climbing is that when you grip a hold hard, you occlude blood flow. I explained this in a previous podcast. Uh, as the muscle contracts, it squeezes on the capillaries that innervate the muscles and essentially halts blood flow, squeezes the blood flow out. And so there is no oxygen available to the muscle cell, to the mitochondria, to make ATP via the aerobic energy system when blood flow is stopped. And when you're gripping a hold, at only 20% of your maximum grip, blood flow begins to slow. Now, it's only a slight slowing, but as you grip harder, the extent of the occlusion increases, and by about 50% of peak finger force, blood flow halts you are completely occluded. Now, a little side note, women actually don't occlude as fast as men. Studies have shown that at a 50% of maximum voluntary contraction, women still have a little bit of blood flow moving through their forearm muscles. And that's one reason that women tend to be better endurance climbers, one of many reasons. But in any case, at 50% of maximum voluntary contraction of your finger flexor muscles, you are fully anaerobic. There is no aerobic production of ATP ongoing. And so uh, technically, that's one reason you need to make those, those maximal grips or even those half of max force grips brief. Get on and off those small holds quickly. Reduce the time under tension for your forearm flexors and helps to give you these little bursts of blood flow and of oxygen to the system, to the finger flexor muscles between grips. Equally important is during those little bursts of blood flow uh, between grips or during far submaximal gripping, below 50% of maximum voluntary contraction, in addition to blood flow bringing oxygen in, it also helps enhance the efflux of hydrogen ions and lactate. And the more steadily you can transport those anaerobic byproducts out of the cell into the bloodstream, you can slow the loss of homeostasis and keep the anaerobic system going a little longer. So blood flow is critical. And so this brings us to the first big take-home point of this podcast, is that the more you can maintain blood flow through the forearm flexor muscles, the better. This will slow the drop in pH, the rise in acidosis, and it will maintain some aerobic ATP contribution even during long sequences that you think of being primarily anaerobic. And so even that second or two of blood flow between grips is a difference maker. Reducing the time under tension, how long you grip each hold, that is a big difference maker. And also, reducing the amount of time you just spend hanging out at static positions. Now, if it's a jug rest with good feet, hang out all you want. But if it's a marginal rest, you might just want to chalk up and get going because 
if you're gripping at more than 50% of maximum voluntary contraction, there's really no fresh oxygen and there's no recovery occurring. So keep moving. And hence, a well-trained climber will have highly refined movement skills and strategy, but also the forearm muscles are highly trained to have high, what you might call VO2 kinetics, the ability to uh, utilize oxygen quickly, uh, get oxygen into the cells uh, rapidly during those brief periods of blood flow between grips. And so the aerobic system is essential to support the anaerobic system. And it's, I believe, a real difference maker when it comes to long, sustained, high-intensity climbing. Think of Adam Andra. I talk about him a lot, but he's the best climber in the world, and we all see his videos, and he's just amazing in pretty much every way on the rock. But his ability to persevere on those long, steep routes is not only a large anaerobic reserve, but also a high aerobic power and capacity to generate ATP via the aerobic energy system. And so I hope I'm kind of selling you on the idea that the aerobic energy system is kind of a linchpin that connects the other two energy systems, the anaerobic alactic and the anaerobic lactic energy system, because it provides tremendous support to both of these energy systems the very energy systems that are being tested when you're climbing at your limit. And so while it's easy to kind of blow off aerobic training and think, oh, well, that's for low-intensity climbing or that's for runners, the fact is it plays a significant supporting role in high-intensity exercise, especially when it's intermittent high-intensity exercise with brief rests. And so sport climbing situations where the rock is steep and the moves are pumpy and long and, uh, you know, your forearms blow up and balloon and you start gasping for breath. Yeah, that's your anaerobic. Those are signs of your anaerobic system being taxed and perhaps failing if you're hanging on the rope or hanging on a bolt. But during those situations, I believe that nearly 50% of total ATP production is coming from the aerobic energy system. And there's been some research done on this. Uh, Bertuzzi back, I think, in 2007, and there might have been a a newer study that in the lab tried to establish how much each energy system was contributing. And uh, it was nearly an even split between anaerobic and aerobic energy system when it comes to the pathway by which ATP is being produced. And, you know, there's no super accurate test yet for uh, measuring the strength of a climber's aerobic energy system. Again, if we want to call this a climbing-specific VO2, because what you can't do is put a climber onto a treadmill or onto an aerodyne bike in a lab setting and do a traditional VO2 test like you would do to a runner or an aerobic athlete. You do that and you're going to be measuring their VO2 in a very not specific way to climbing. Uh, You need to have a test on a tread wall, uh, a very steep 
tread wall where you're climbing fast and powerfully. And uh, that is the way that you will tax the system specifically and be able to measure a climbing specific VO2. And there was uh, one or two studies recently done by, I believe, Italian researchers that I'll get into in, in a bit um, that has provided some data on this. But trust me, I think it's accurate to say that if you're a roped climber, about 50% of your ATP. What's going to fuel you on the climb is coming by way of the aerobic energy system. But again, you need to think of it as, as the climbing specific aerobic energy system and not conflate that with the aerobic energy system that prevails in, say, running or other activities. Okay, so now to begin the segue from kind of theory into practice and what you can do in terms of training, uh, we need to keep in mind that distinction between the local climbing-specific aerobic energy system. Again, think about what's going on in your finger flexors or in your pulling muscles, the muscles that are most taxed in climbing. We need to distinguish that from generalized aerobic training, which uh, works and stresses the larger cardiovascular system, the circulatory system, and your lungs, um, and obviously how strong your heart is. Uh, that plays a role, and if you climb hard, if you frequently climb at an intensity that makes you get out of breath and gets your heart rate maxed out, well, then you are getting some of those generalized cardiovascular adaptations from your climbing workouts, but there's also some benefit to doing some generalized aerobic training, which we'll get to in a moment. But let's get back and focus on the finger flexors uh, as a way of kind of examining some of the adaptations we're after with our climbing-specific aerobic training. And again, it's the same adaptations we would be after in the pulling muscles and the postural muscles, all the muscles that are highly strained in hard climbing, but we're going to focus on the finger flexors because they are of greatest interest to us and often the point of failure while we're climbing. Okay then, so in terms of those training adaptations in the finger flexor muscles, uh, the climbing specific muscles that are highly stressed, uh, the adaptations that bring about an apparent increase in endurance and aerobic power Number one is an increase in capillary density, or we might think about it as a decrease in the diffusion distance between capillaries and mitochondria. So the capillaries supply oxygen to the working muscle fibers, and that oxygen needs to get to mitochondria as quickly as possible to generate ATP via oxidative phosphorylation. And so the smaller the distance between the mitochondria and the capillaries, the more quickly oxygen can get into the cell. Researchers call this O2 kinetics or oxygen kinetics. And so by increasing the number of capillaries into the working muscle or surrounding the muscle cell, that increase in density, uh, having more of the cell surrounded by capillaries, uh, makes the distance getting into mitochondria shorter and increases oxidative kinetics. So at least when blood is flowing, it can get more quickly into the cell so that you can generate ATP aerobically. And this is something that's been studied uh, with regard to climbers. Simon Fryer, a uh, 
researcher out of the UK did a study a few years ago, and he looked at advanced climbers and elite climbers and found that the elite climbers had higher oxidative kinetics. They were able to deoxygenate and reoxygenate the finger flexor muscles more quickly than lesser climbers. So that an obvious sign of an adaptation that resulted uh, in those elite climbers that made them better at what they do. Um, there are other vascular adaptations. Uh, arterial diameter has shown to get larger with local aerobic training. Uh, you know, there's a greater vascular conductance, how much blood you can get in and out of the muscle. Uh, the endothelium that line capillaries and blood vessels uh, become better at transporting oxygen across that boundary into the cell. Uh, there's a greater offload of O2 from the hemoglobin to the myoglobin into the mitochondria. Uh, so these are all things that contribute to better O2 kinetics. What things might hurt O2 kinetics? Well, I mentioned one in the previous podcast. If you grow a larger muscle cell and don't add any capillaries, uh, you essentially are increasing the diffusion distance between the capillaries and the mitochondria. And hence, hypertrophy is not something a climber is really after. You don't want to make the muscle cell too much bigger or do anything that's going to make the cell larger and decrease capillary density or increase that diffusion distance. Uh, and I mentioned previously in a podcast that loading creatine phosphate, which tends to bring a lot of water into the cell and volumize the cell and make it larger, bodybuilders like larger muscles, that also increases diffusion distance and likely will hurt aerobic energy production and actually decrease aerobic endurance. Adaptation number two relates to uh, various enzymes, uh, oxidative enzymes, anaerobic enzymes that uh, uh, adapt and increase as a result of training. Now, specific to mitochondria, there's citrate synthase, which amazingly has been shown to upregulate or to respond significantly with just seven to 10 days of aerobic training. And so this is one of those adaptations that can play out quickly and get you some improvement in the oxidative system. When you when you go to a, a route climbing area or a pumpy sport climbing area, rifle or the Red River Gorge here in the United States, for example, uh, if you're there for a few weeks, you notice a gain in endurance uh, over that time frame. And an increase in these aerobic enzymes is one of the adaptations, among others, that help bring about that improvement in your endurance uh, over the course of just a few weeks. Of course, there are several other enzymes that respond as a result of aerobic training and anaerobic training, and uh, several of them relate to the handling of the pyruvate that results from anaerobic glycolysis. If oxygen is available, that pyruvate can be shuttled into the mitochondria and oxidized. That's aerobic glycolysis. But in ischemic situations where blood flow is occluded and oxygen is limited or not even present, as is common in the finger flexors when climbing hard, well, that pyruvate needs to be converted to lactate. Um, and so there's the lactate dehydrogenase A enzyme, which catalyzes that conversion to lactate. And then 
the transporters, MCT1, that helps get the lactate out of the working cell. And then when it flows elsewhere in the body or to a slow twitch fiber nearby, uh, MCT4 transports the lactate into that slow twitch fiber. And then an LDHB enzyme catalyzes the conversion of lactate back to pyruvate, where it can then be burned by mitochondria. Uh, via the aerobic pathway. And so those are all important enzymes that respond to training as well. Now, perhaps the most significant adaptation uh, and the real big one is mitochondria biogenesis. Um, and I've mentioned mitochondria throughout the previous podcasts and here today. Uh, just a reminder, mitochondria, they are the power plants inside of all muscle cells that generate ATP prolifically. Uh, I mentioned a couple podcasts ago, and this is just an unbelievable statistic, but uh, during one day, your body, the mitochondria, recycle an amount of ATP equal to your body weight. So I weigh 160 pounds. I recycle approximately 160 pounds of ATP per day, probably more than that on a real active day and less than that on uh, a rest day. But in any case, that shows you just how prolific these power plants are, these mitochondria are. And on average, there's about one to 2,000 mitochondria per cell, uh, but it varies depending what muscle you're talking about. Uh, cardiac muscle has the highest mitochondria content. I believe it's something like 35% of uh, heart muscle is mitochondria. At the other end of the spectrum, fast twitch fibers, type 2B, those are the non-oxidative fast twitch fibers. Uh, mitochondria make up only about 2% of those fast twitch type 2B fibers. And they're the fibers that dominate in those brief alactic situations. Um, slow twitch fibers, which dominate in submaximal activities, are about 20% mitochondria by volume. And the fast twitch type 2A fibers, these are the oxidative fast twitch fibers. Well, the mitochondria content varies depending on training, and that's why those are the fibers, the fast-twitch 2A fibers, that climbers are most interested in targeting and getting to adapt to training, to aerobic training, because they may only be 4 or 5% mitochondria by volume uh, in an untrained state, but could double, perhaps triple, uh, to 10 or 12% mitochondria by way of targeted aerobic training. And so those are fast twitch fibers that can contribute towards high force production, but yet function aerobically and generate ATP. And, and these are fibers that are really crucial to sustained high intensity climbing. And uh, in any case, the bottom line is uh, mitochondria biogenesis is the adaptation we're after when we do aerobic training targeted aerobic training in the climbing muscles should increase mitochondria mass. And this will allow, given oxygen supply, a higher volume of ATP, a greater rate of ATP production. And when we're talking about rate of ATP production aerobically, that is aerobic power. Now, just a brief tangent. One interesting thing about mitochondria is that they don't function well when 
intercellular pH drops very much. And so that's a big problem for rock climbers with the isometric contractions, with the occlusion of blood flow, with the anaerobic glycolysis releasing those hydrogen ions and lowering the pH inside of the cell. If it drops too low, once blood flow is reestablished, initially the mitochondria can't do much with that oxygen. And so your recovery is really, really slowed when you get very acidy. And so that's one of the, the flash pump phenomena where you get that really sick, deep pump, that vicious pump before you've really warmed up well, you get really acidy. You often never recover from that that day, or it might take hours to recover from that because of that tremendous loss of homeostasis, just whacking the mitochondria and making them semi-dysfunctional for a period of time. And so anything you can do to limit intracellular acidosis, to get those hydrogen ions out of the cell, to buffer the cell, will in turn enhance mitochondria function in those very stressful situations. So again, it's a complex web we're weaving here of all these anaerobic and aerobic adaptations, but they do all dovetail together. And so if you can assimilate this material, this knowledge will literally become power, power to take your climbing to the next level. Okay, so we have aerobic power, and then we also have aerobic capacity, which let me just address here briefly. Aerobic capacity is how much ATP the aerobic system can generate over a period of time, like an hour or a day. That's aerobic capacity, and that's important if you climb a lot of long routes or multi-pitch routes, or you want to climb all day at a submaximal level, like on a big wall. Uh, any climbing done at a relatively low intensity, if you're gripping at less than 30% of maximum voluntary contraction, and just your overall effort is very submaximal, well, the aerobic energy system is primarily able to support your climbing. And so how long you can do that type of submaximal climbing in terms of hours, that is related to aerobic capacity. And so that's something that needs to be developed. But for a boulderer or a sport climber, it's really an increase in aerobic power that you're after. That's the real difference maker when it comes to hard sport climbs, the stop and go hard climbing that you encounter on a long rope drought, or even in bouldering at a high level throughout the day. Your ability to recover between boulder problem attempts is strongly influenced by your level of aerobic power. Uh, and so increasing aerobic power is the primary goal of our aerobic training for climbing, although that will yield some increase in aerobic capacity as well, which is how long you could climb throughout the day and have the aerobic energy system be the prevalent source of ATP production and not have the aerobic energy system fail you, not hit the wall, as runners put it. Okay then, so we finally arrived where we get to some training. What are the things you can do to improve your aerobic power and your aerobic capacity, the overall strength of your aerobic energy system, and come about the various adaptations that we've just talked about? Uh, ideally, you want to do training on a climbing wall because you want it to be as specific to climbing as is possible. Though there are a few exercises you might do on 
a hangboard at home that uh, will give you some aerobic adaptations. And then, of course, there's the uh, generalized aerobic training that we'll talk about at the very end of the podcast. So uh, in terms of climbing training that targets the aerobic energy system, I'm going to cover three general strategies. And uh, they're each kind of novel, and they each try to avoid that anaerobic lactic energy system where you get real acidy and pumped out. Again, the power of the energy system conceptual model is that it allows you to target your training to get optimal adaptations. Uh, And so in the case of training the aerobic energy system, we want to avoid going very anaerobic. We want to avoid that uh, acidosis and the pump. Okay, so uh, the first is high volume, continuous, but submaximal, far submaximal climbing. Uh, It's kind of the climber's equivalent of a long, slow distance run as runners put it, where you go out for a 30 or 60 minute run and you're running at a pace that's so moderate that you can hold a conversation. You're not getting winded. You're not getting exhausted. You're kind of gliding and relaxing and it's not a stressful workout, but your aerobic system is carrying the load and and getting a workout. And so uh, in a climber's lexicon, this type of training is called ARC, which I believe was a a term or acronym coined by uh, the authors of the Performance Rock Climbing book, the classic text from, what, 25 years ago by Goddard and Newman. And ARC stands for aerobic, restorative, and capillary. And so, yeah, you're training the aerobic system. Uh, This is low-intensity exercise, which can be restorative or what I call recovery type climbing. Um, And yes, you'll presumably build some capillaries and also mitochondria. So maybe it should be called ARCM, A-R-C-M, put the M in there for training the mitochondria up. You know, those are the adaptations we're after. And I think for a beginner or intermediate climber, there's some value in one or two of these ARC or continuous submaximal climbing sessions per week. For a higher level climber, I have my doubts that it's uh, strenuous enough to bring about further adaptations to get the aerobic system up to a higher level. Um, I think it could have some value as a recovery day kind of thing for an elite climber, but probably doesn't have much value to take your training to the next level. But in any case, um, the way you do this is... uh, In a climbing gym, you would either do very easy routes, I'm talking three or four number grades below your limit, or traverse a vertical wall on large holds. The key, and and I believe this was pointed out in the Performance Rock Climbing book, they got it right. It has to be very submaximal. Your finger grips should be only 20 or 30% of, of, of maximum. So that's a pretty big you know, easy grip, nothing that's going to completely occlude blood flow, nothing that's going to get you pumped. And uh, so this can be pretty boring climbing. And for an 
enthusiastic climber, when you go to do this type of climbing, it's very easy for it to escalate into something harder uh, for you to convince yourself, well, this doesn't feel like much of a workout, this arc thing, and all of a sudden you're getting on harder climbing and you're getting pumped and you know one thing leads to another and you haven't done an aerobic system workout. You've gone down a completely different route uh, that targets the anaerobic system. You know, climbers do have that pump lust. It's tough to go to the gym and not work hard and not get pumped, but it's a, a necessity to avoid that if you're going to do kind of this long, continuous climbing, this arc type uh, training with the goal of spinning up and enhancing the aerobic energy system. In any case, 20 to 40 to maybe even 60 minutes of climbing in aggregate. Uh, it might be tough to do 60 minutes of continuous climbing in a climbing gym. So maybe you could do you know, a 20-minute set of just lapping an easy route, uh, you know, a roped, a longer roped climb, uh, and then switch out and have your partner do the same for 20 minutes and then go back and forth a few times over the course of a couple of hours. You might climb a 1,000 feet or three or 400 meters of rock at a very low intensity, but that's the goal. That's a pretty good workout if your goal is to do an arc session. Again, I'm not sure there's much value in this exercise for elite climbers, and it's probably going to be tough to get them to follow through or to kind of stay with the program anyways because of uh, them just being used to climbing hard and pushing themselves and probably not wanting to be seen on a 510 when they're a 514 climber. Who knows? Um, so that's where exercise number two, threshold intervals, as I call them, is probably the more effective approach. The goal with threshold intervals is to maximally tax the aerobic energy system without going too deeply into anaerobic glycolysis, without getting too acidic, uh, too pumped, uh, without subjecting the mitochondria to a high proton load that's going to negatively affect mitochondria function. Uh, and so threshold intervals are difficult to get right, but the goal is to climb at a high enough intensity to get you lightly pumped and a bit winded, but not kind of go over the edge deeply into the anaerobic zone. I tell climbers on an intensity scale of 1 to 10, you're probably shooting for around 8 out of 10. And these threshold intervals, I recommend 3 minutes in duration. You could go as long as 5 minutes in duration, uh, and your work to rest ratio should be a one to one or two to one. So at a one to one ratio, you would climb three minutes, rest three minutes, and repeat uh, four to six times. Uh, at a two to one ratio, you might climb four minutes, rest two minutes, uh, and repeat a few times. Again, you have to get the intensity right. It would be very easy for these threshold intervals to escalate to the point of a severe pump and uh, going fully anaerobic. And uh, you have then lost the training effect, it, at least in terms of targeting specifically the aerobic energy system uh, and instead shifting gears and also training the anaerobic system. And hey, you can do that. You will train both systems, but not optimally. Uh, my philosophy is with the energy system training by targeting the individual systems with a, a workout, 
you get optimal adaptations of that energy system. The, the way to get this right for sure is to be able to take some measurements of what's going on inside of the muscle. And I do that here uh, in our gym. Uh, I, I can use, I can do it two ways. I can take after the three minute threshold interval during the rest interval, I can uh, do a pinprick of the finger and take a lactate reading and see what their lactate level is. If you're doing it right, you should be right around a two or three millimole per liter. If you are above a two or a three, that would be a sign of high proton load, acidosis, and a sign that you're, you're going very anaerobic. And so blood lactate at rest is around a one. So there's going to be a little bit of lactate production, but that's a good thing. One of the adaptations we're after is for mitochondria to be able to utilize lactate for fuel. And so having a slight increase in lactate is a good thing in doing these threshold workouts. It's a sign you've found just the right margin. But if you generate too much lactate, if you're dumping a ton of lactate into the bloodstream, again, if I measure a four or five or a six or above, uh, then you've gone too far, way too far. Another less invasive way is to use near-infrared spectroscopy. Uh, there's a device that you can attach to the forearm right on top of the working muscle that peers inside of the muscle and measures the oxygenation of the myoglobin and hemoglobin, and you can see real-time the deoxygenation and reoxygenation of the finger flexor muscles as a climber is climbing or resting. And so uh, typically at rest, the muscle oxygenation is around 60%. Uh, what I would want to see in a, a well-executed threshold interval is the oxygen level drop to around 30%. Uh, if it drops to 15 or 10 or towards zero, that's a sign that you've just very much occluded blood flow. Uh, it is now a very anaerobic environment inside the working muscle, and you are no longer training the aerobic energy system, uh, certainly not in an optimal way. And so uh, I, I think this is technology that coaches will uh, learn to embrace. Uh, you don't need to do it on a daily basis, by the way, because once I work with a climber and have them do a threshold workout and I take these measurements, they learn to associate a certain feeling. They, they know what the feeling is of climbing at a blood lactate of two to three. They learn what the feeling is of climbing at a muscle oxygenation of 30%. And so really just one time, if I work with somebody, I can get them to find that zone, what the feel is of an optimal threshold session, and then they can take that and apply it, whether it's on a bouldering wall or a tread wall, as we do it, or in a climbing gym. Again, the protocol would be three to five minutes of climbing at an intensity of around eight out of 10. And by the way, that's an intensity at the end of the set, not at the beginning of the set. So it's going to start off feeling easy, but by the end of the set at three minutes or five minutes, it should be about an eight out of 10. And then you recover and repeat this a few times. And if you do four to six intervals, maybe an elite climber, as many as 10 intervals, it's a heck of a workout. Uh, this will bring about adaptations that increase both aerobic power and aerobic capacity. The arc training that I just covered a moment ago, I think that will train up aerobic capacity and 
perhaps a little bit of aerobic power, but the the rate of power production is so low with arcing that I don't think there's a lot to gain there, again, in terms of taking that aerobic power, the rate of ATP production in the mitochondria to the next level. I don't think it's happening with arc training, whereas I do think it's happening with threshold training. Okay, on we go to the third strategy for training higher aerobic power, and that's what I call alactic aerobic intervals. Uh, this is something I outlined in my uh, Training for Climbing book, the third edition that came out almost two years ago. If you don't have a copy, pick up a copy because it is a comprehensive text that covers it all. It's going to be a real resource, an encyclopedia that you will reference to help you improve in many different ways. But it gets into some very technical and advanced specific training modalities such as alactic intervals. And here's what alactic intervals are. They're essentially sprint repeats. If you ever played soccer or hockey or football or a sport where as part of your conditioning, they would have you do sprint repeats where you do a five or 10 second all out sprint and then you rest for maybe a minute and then do another five or 10 second all out sprint. That's kind of what these alactic intervals are. And they have been shown, there's actually quite a bit of research that has shown that this training strategy is excellent in increasing mitochondria mass and also respiration, how well the mitochondria function, how much ATP each mitochondria factory can crank out. So it builds more factories and it makes each factory more effective at making ATP. And therefore, if you're talking about rate of ATP, how fast you can regenerate ATP between boulder problems or between grips or at brief mid-climb rests, that's aerobic power. And this is exactly what this type of training would do. Now, alactic intervals are really an advanced training technique. Uh, if you haven't been climbing several years, if you're not already really strong and really fit, you don't want to go here yet. You want to use one of the other two strategies. But if you are an elite climber, then these alactic intervals are a very powerful training strategy to use perhaps up to twice per week. And so here's how to do it in a very climbing specific way. You want to do pretty much a high power exercise that lasts between five seconds and at very most 20 seconds. 20 seconds would be if it's something where your finger flexors are getting a little bit of recovery between each grip. And so you can go a little bit longer before you deplete the intracellular creatine phosphate. That's really what we're targeting here is the alactic energy system. Now you might say, well, Eric, how does that train the aerobic energy system? Well, the aerobic energy system is being trained during the recovery periods. So this is kind of a kill two birds with one stone kind of exercise. You're actually doing alactic training, but you're bringing about an adaptation that is also benefiting the aerobic energy system. Because during those rest breaks, the capillaries fill up with blood, oxygen is perfused into the working muscles, the mitochondria factories are cranking ATP as hard as they can, to replenish creatine phosphate stores inside the cell. And in about 45 seconds, they will be 50 to 70% refilled so that you're ready to begin your next alactic interval. 
Now again, this is an advanced training strategy, and you need to do it just right. And so if you're not climbing at least solid 512 or bouldering V7 or V8, then you're not likely ready for this yet. In terms of doing it right, well, you must train with fast, powerful, but not quite maximal movements. And you must not have any long grips or long lock-offs that will occlude blood flow. It's important to understand that you're not doing maximal alactic training with long rests in between, as I described in the first Energy System podcast. What you're doing here is fast, submaximal alactic training with much shorter rest intervals that stress the aerobic energy system's recovery ability. Okay, so four ways that we do it here and that I recommend climbers go about doing alactic intervals. The most specific would be on a tread wall or on a bouldering wall to do a very brief, relatively intense climbing intervals. Uh, the problem should be non-technical. You should not fall off because you can't find a body position or do a move. You probably want to set specific routes to do this or use a hit strip system from Nikros. Uh, or on our tread wall, we have just uh, basically a crimp ladder on the tread wall and a pocket ladder on the tread wall and a pinch ladder on the tread wall. So we can train different grip positions and do these 20 second alactic intervals where we just power very hard for 20 seconds, basically a sprint, though we're not measuring speed, but it feels like we're working hard. And then we rest for about 40 seconds to a minute. And the rest should be incomplete. So I kind of like rounding off each interval to one minute. It makes it very simple to keep track of and just to, to implement. So if we climb 20 seconds, we rest 40, and then we do four to six of those intervals. Another device, a new machine that I'm promoting is Endless Rope. This is a really clever device. It has a thick gym rope that you pull, and you can pull as quick and endlessly as you like. It's actually quite climbing specific. It targets not the gripping muscles so much as it does the pulling muscles, so it's a nice complement to the training you do on a climbing wall, which tends to be more grip centric. Uh, in any case, uh, on the endless rope, we, we turn the intensity to the lightest setting and we go as hard as we can. Basically, we're sprinting up the rope, although we're not moving, the rope is moving, and we do this for 15 seconds, rest for 45 seconds, and repeat four to six times. Uh, again, uh, a bouldering wall, a moon board, a hit strip system, if you're doing specific problems, probably you're talking about more like 10 or 12 seconds just because the wall is short. And if you get into down climbing or traversing, it just gets too complicated. So I would say uh, on a bouldering wall or moon board, set a few theme problems like a crimp problem, a pocket problem, a pinch problem. They should not be technical, but they should be powerful. And so the problem might only be say six moves long, which might take you 10 seconds. You step off the wall, rest for 50 seconds, and do that exact problem six times in a row. And finally, a campus board. If you're really, really strong and know your way around a campus board and can climb in good form with a little bit of growing fatigue, well, then you can use a campus board for alactic intervals. Again, if you're new to a campus board and can barely ladder up it, you're not ready. Remember, to do this right, it must be fast and submaximal. 
So in my case, my maximal campus board move is a 147. So for my submaximal alactic aerobic intervals, I train with a 13579, which I can do very fast. It takes me less than five seconds to do that simple ladder up. I then jump down and time a rest of exactly 55 seconds, then launch into my next 13579 ladder up. And I continue in this way for six intervals. What's interesting is that while the first two or three intervals are really easy, I do begin to breathe a bit heavier between intervals four, five, and six, which is a good sign that the aerobic energy system is being taxed in the recovery process. So no matter which tool you use to implement these alactic aerobic intervals, you will notice a gradual increase in breathing rate as you progress through the six intervals. Of course, it's essential that the rests between intervals are brief and the recovery incomplete. Really, you need to use a stopwatch or a timing app to get it right in order to properly stress the aerobic system. Again, you should be getting a bit out of breath by the end of the six interval set because the mitochondria are consuming oxygen to make ATP to resynthesize creatine phosphate during those brief rest intervals. And what you shouldn't be getting is any kind of a pump. You may power out, but you shouldn't pump out. If you're getting pumped at all, that means your intervals are too long or the moves are too hard and technical or you're holding a grip too long. I mean, everything should be bang, bang, very, very quick. And and that way, uh, blood is flowing. You're really just targeting the ATP, CP energy system, the alactic system, hence the name. But during the recovery periods, it's pretty much 100% the aerobic system doing the recovery. So uh, this is a very powerful training method. And if you do four to six intervals, that would make one group or one set. And if you're an elite level climber, you might do two to four sets with at least five minutes of rest in between. And again, this is not maximal anything. It's not maximal bouldering. It's not maximal campus boarding. You should be doing movements that you can do quickly and confidently and powerfully, but not ever feel like you're uh, getting a deeply worked pumped at all, and certainly you should not be failing on them. If they are, you need to tone it down. Okay, so now let me move on and just briefly address uh, what you would do to train the aerobic energy system if you don't have access to a climbing wall. Let's say at home you just have a fingerboard or a campus board or something like that. Um, And this is less ideal and it's a bit more difficult and it can be really, really boring to train the aerobic energy system using those type of home tools. But the strategy, it's something I've described in my books and other authors and coaches have talked about. Uh, I call it moving hangs. Uh, Some people call it hand play. Um, But pretty much you would set up under your hang board or under your campus board and you would have your feet resting on a wall-mounted foot strip or even a chair or something underneath you that uh, that takes weight off your body or perhaps a counterweight system that can take off a lot of body weight because you probably need to remove more than half your body weight, perhaps three quarters of your body weight to reduce the gripping force to only 20 to 30% of your maximum voluntary contraction. Again, you don't want to be occluding blood flow. This has to be very, very submaximal. The grips need to be uh, so light that blood is still flowing for the most part. And so that 
30 to 40 percent of maximum voluntary contraction is kind of where you should be at. So you could collect some data. If you have a counterweight system, you could find out what your maximum grip strength is and then calculate 20 to 30 percent of that and make that your counterweight and go about hanging on your hangboard, moving your hands around the hangboard, or circulating your grip around the campus board for a few minutes. Again, kind of taking a threshold training approach where you might do it for three minutes and then rest for a minute and a half or two minutes and then repeat. Again, a light pump is okay. A deep forearm pump means you're doing it wrong. It means you're gripping too hard, you're occluding blood flow, you're training the anaerobic system. And uh, although you will get some aerobic adaptations from that anaerobic workout, it's not the goal here. It's not what we're after. On a hangboard, I, I guess, again, using a counterweight system, you could use a repeater protocol like the 7-3, where you hang for seven seconds, let go and rest for three seconds, repeat that six times. So that would be about one minute of training uh, and alternate one minute of training with one minute of rest and keep going back and forth and do 10 to 20 sets. That would be 20 to 40 minutes of training. Again, you need to do that at just a fraction of body weight, 30 to 40% of your maximum voluntary contraction. And so again, you need to do a little calculus to get it right. Probably only a very elite climber could uh, properly do this at body weight. Um, and I like to recommend you use a hold that is about one pad in depth. So around a 20 millimeter hold on a fingerboard, I believe is the way to go for this type of training. Again, don't confuse this with strength endurance training or maximum strength training. It's not. Those are training protocols for those other energy systems, the two anaerobic energy systems. If you want to target the aerobic energy system, it needs to be very, very submaximal. Okay, so here are the last part of this podcast. I want to talk just briefly about generalized aerobic training. Things like running and biking and rowing and swimming or trail running. Uh, those are fun activities, uh, or at least for some climbers they are. I guess climbers kind of fall into two camps. They either love that type of stuff as part of their training or they abhor it and avoid it at all cost. And so I'm kind of on the love side of things. Uh, I don't do a lot of running anymore, but a couple of days per week to kind of supplement my overall training program. And, you know, the it's a common question. Does that type of aerobic training really enhance climbing performance or in any way support climbing performance? And the answer is yes, uh, though climbers remain very skeptical because on the surface, climbing seems to be very anaerobic. You always seem to fail with pumped forearms, which is a sign of the anaerobic system failing you. But of course, to the more educated climber, understanding the material of the last few podcasts, you know the importance of the aerobic energy system. And today's podcast, I pointed out the many ways the aerobic system supports the, uh, the anaerobic pathways. Now, if you've read some of the older climbing research dating 10 or 20 years back, some of the early conclusions were that the aerobic energy system wasn't all that important for climbing. You know, they tested climbers and found that their VO2 was quite low uh, in terms of uh, the consumption of oxygen while climbing was 
approximately half of what could be consumed or elicited if they put that climber through a treadmill test or a bicycling test to determine a VO2 max. And so aerobic fitness seemed relatively unimportant for climbing performance. But those early studies were mostly on near vertical walls and the climbers were moving slowly. And so the test really didn't resemble modern climbing. It perhaps represented traditional climbing where you move very slowly and place gear and stand on your feet. But modern sport climbing is steep and powerful and aggressive and you have to climb quickly. And so more recently, there's been a couple of researchers that have, as I mentioned earlier, set up tread walls and overhanging walls and done a more specific, more modern test of climbing VO2. And they find absolutely these climbers are getting worked at very close to their generalized VO2 max. In fact, one study I have here just published out of Italy found that uh, these advanced climbers, uh, when uh, put through a very difficult climb, a a near-limit, rigorous kind of climb, elicited about 96% of their VO2 max. And so, uh, as the authors of this study report uh, in their conclusion, the old belief that VO2 max is not a prerequisite for climbing performance may be inaccurate. And for this reason, specific training components to improve aerobic power in climbers should be employed to optimize performance. So that's not me speaking. That's a group of um, five researchers out of Italy who just did a really interesting study that kind of supports the importance of aerobic energy system training and therefore validates hopefully the content and the use of the information covered in this podcast. And so everything up to this point has kind of focused on this climbing specific methods of training local uh, aerobic energy production, you know, in local to the climbing muscles in the finger flexors and the hard working climbing muscles. But when it comes to the generalized training like running, you know, we're not really so much interested in climbers training up the aerobic capacity of their leg muscles. The legs rarely fail you on a climb, whether it's strength or endurance. Uh, Obviously, there's specific climbs that might test your legs, but for the most part, that's not the limiting constraint. Uh, The value of doing generalized aerobic training is uh, what it benefits you through the cardiovascular system. Uh, Now, if you get out of breath and elevate your heart rate climbing, you're gaining some of these cardiovascular benefits. But some additional training, if you have the time, a couple days a week, you get out for a light jog or bike ride or trail run or swim, is likely beneficial. The adaptations you'd be after or that you would hopefully acquire would be structural adaptations of the heart, uh, increased stroke volume. Uh, This would benefit you through a lowering of your resting heart rate and enable you to uh, climb at a lower heart rate at a given power output and also allow you to recover more quickly between climbs. Uh, You would also likely gain an increase in blood volume, which increases oxygen transport throughout the body, and it also helps improve temperature regulation. So I'm not telling you to go out there and kill it on the roads, but I'm telling you that a couple of days a week, 
of some generalized aerobic training at a very modest intensity. You know, think about that long, slow distance running. That's kind of what you're after. It is beneficial. It is helpful. If you're doing everything else right, you probably want to add a little bit of this kind of training into your program. I would never give up a climbing gym workout or a strength training, you know, fingerboard session so you can go for a run. Uh, That would be misplaced priorities. But if you have the time and are doing all the other stuff to do a little bit of this generalized training would be quite helpful. So some guidelines, Uh, again, nothing massive, time consuming, nothing fatiguing. Uh, You're training for climbing. You're not training for a marathon or the Tour de France or the Ironman. If you want to do that, that's great, but that's not going to make you a better climber. As my friend and fellow coach Steve Bechtel likes to say, you can't run yourself into becoming a better climber. So here's what I recommend. 20 to 40 minutes at a very comfortable pace. Whatever your chosen activity is, I choose running because it's simple. I go out my door and and run my loop, which is about three miles and takes me about 25 minutes. So I'm running at a casual eight minute per mile pace. And I do this two days per week, or perhaps up to as much as four days per week. But I would not do any more. And in fact, during an in-season training, performance season where I'm at right now, twice a week is all I do. Uh, It's just kind of a recovery run to maintain what I have. During the off-season, I might ramp that up to 30 or 40 minutes, three or four days per week, just to kind of maybe build a little bit of cardiovascular fitness uh, to, I guess at my age, maintain that fitness, maintain mitochondria mass, which, by the way, tends to be lost with age, and cardiac function drops with age. VO2 is lost about 1% per year with age. So uh, if you're a middle-aged climber, you need to fight off these losses that naturally come about. Uh, And so off-season, I'll do a little bit more of the aerobic training. It allows me to eat a little more because I'm burning more calories and, uh, you know, and it feels good. And uh, the final comment is you need to stay aware of what you get out of this generalized aerobic training. Uh, It's possible, depending on your genetics, we're all a little different, that there could be an adverse effect. And what am I talking about? Well, Uh, an increase in lower body muscle mass. Some people, if they run or cycle or trail run or hike a lot, will actually grow larger leg muscles or glutes. Uh, It may be muscle hypertrophy. It may simply be increased glycogen storage that results from doing regular aerobic activity of this nature. And if you're putting on any weight, in non-climbing muscles, it's a bad thing. And perhaps even in the climbing muscles. We discussed this in previous podcasts. You want to get stronger. You want to get more powerful. You want to increase aerobic power without increasing mass, body mass, much, if at all. This is a power-to-weight ratio sport. So don't let anybody tell you that body weight isn't a factor. It is the denominator in the equation of strength-to-weight ratio or power to, to weight ratio. Um, and so I'm not advocating anything harsh or just crazy in terms of losing weight, but I'm just pointing out you don't want to add on weight that's not essential. Uh, perhaps a little bit of upper body mass will come about as you train for climbing. It's probably okay. 
but for the most part, you don't want to be growing bigger biceps, bigger chest muscles, you know, bigger glutes, bigger quads, bigger calves. Uh, if anything, you want to make them slightly smaller to uh, help out in that strength to weight ratio calculation. Okay, well, I guess it's about time to wrap up this podcast. It's gotten longer than I had hoped, but I hope you appreciate the effort. Uh, you know, I have something like 16 pages of notes going into this podcast, and then you add in a few tangents, and all of a sudden you have an hour or hour and a half podcast on your hands. But uh, if you appreciate it, if you keep the kind feedback coming and the good uh, iTunes reviews, then I guess I will continue with this modus operandi and try to bring you some rich, detailed, and probably lengthy content each month going forward. So to wrap things up here, a couple quick comments. Uh, when is a good time to do your aerobic uh, energy system training? Well, better early in the day and do your strength and power in the afternoon. Uh, I know there are some climbers who like to get up and drink their coffee and do strength and power, but you are naturally stronger in the afternoon. So first of all, you want to train strength and power when you are naturally strongest so you can really take things to the max level. Uh, an aerobic workout, whether it's generalized or climbing specific in the morning, is a good way to kind of wake up your body and get it started, get the blood flowing. And you know, there's actually some research that shows that doing your aerobic training, your aerobic conditioning in a fasted state, first thing in the morning, brings about a better signaling for mitochondrial biogenesis. So this is one of those little training tricks or one of those bits of nuance that I'm talking about that elite climbers can do to get a bit more out of their training investment and to perhaps help them eke out the next grade. I get up some mornings, have my cup of coffee, and do uh, a 30 or so minute generalized aerobic workout or even a bit of a climbing specific workout. It really sets me up for the day to feel good and positive. I have breakfast after that little morning workout. And then later on in the day, I can do a strength power session or even an anaerobic endurance session. And this two-a-day climbing approach is very, very effective and important for elite climbers. But you need to have the workout separated by ideally six hours. So that means an early morning workout and then pushing your strength and power into the afternoon or early evening. So it does take some planning and some flexibility of schedule. Um, something else is, you know, this whole energy system conceptual model, it is complex and it's going to take you time. It might take you 10 or 15 listens of these podcasts, of this series of podcasts over the next year to really absorb it all, to really make sense of it all, uh, you know, to really think about how it applies to you and how you can incorporate it into your program. You know, a lot of what I cover in these podcasts might seem over the top and you know people say, boy, Eric, you're intense. You know, you're really so scientific and it can overwhelm a lot of people. And I understand that, but you've got to trust me that with effort, with time, it will sink in. It will make sense. It'll make you a better climber. And I'll tell you, you know, this is just the start. You know, climbers have been training the same ways for the last 20 or 30 years. I've seen it. I've been a part of it. Uh, and now is the time we're taking climbing to a higher level. You know, climbing's going to be in the Olympics in two years and probably in the Olympics again four years after that. 
the, the growth of climbing gyms, the growth of the sport, it, it's fantastic. And along with that, there's a tremendous growth in the climbing research being done internationally. You know, I'm going to be speaking at the International Rock Climbers Researchers Association Conference in Chamonix, France in July. Uh, and that'll be a wonderful week where we can exchange ideas, share what we're working on, share our vision and learn from each other and to begin to share that with coaches on an international scale. And so if all that sounds exciting to you, well, then you want to continue listening to these Training for Climbing podcasts. And, uh, you know, in the next episode that I issue when I get back from Europe uh, later this summer, I'll, I'll give you some insights into what I learned at this conference. And uh, and you can follow my Twitter account, at uh, Train for Climbing, and I'll tweet some information out from the research conference uh, in Chamonix. And uh, you can learn a little bit of material, perhaps, on the fly, just by following my Twitter feed. Of course, my book, Training for Climbing, is a great place to start if you're new to training or if you're just getting into heavy-duty training. Training for Climbing, the third edition, I think it's the book that will give you the foundation to move forward and also to take the material that I'm presenting in these podcasts and build upward and onward into the future to become uh, the best climber you can be given uh, what you've been given in terms of genetics and resources and time and motivation. All those things are factors, uh, as is the knowledge that will power you forward. So with that, I guess it's time to sign off. I'm Eric Hurst from trainingforclimbing.com. Until next time, be safe, be strong, and climb on.